living the word today. So, every time we open this book, it is a fresh opportunity for God to talk to us. Let's make sure, let's make very sure that we are listening to what he wants to say to us. Livingthewordtoday.com. Look, the message of the Bible does indeed prepare us for eternity, but it also prepares us for the day we are currently living. Welcome to Living the Word Today. We invite you to spend the next few minutes studying God's Word with your Bible teacher, Jesse Wagoner. Pastor Wagoner's desire for you is not only to understand God's truth, but to help you live it today. More resources can be found on our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Now it is time to open your heart and your Bible for your time in the Word. Y'all look good this morning. From what I can see, I've a little bit of the lighting's kind of in my eyes this morning, but y'all look good. I've talked to a number of you on the way in. You seem pleasant. You seem happy. Uh, I'm refreshed to be in your presence, but I also know and you also know that sometimes on the outside, things look good. We don't want to, we don't want to just spill our baggage and all of our, you know, all of our emotions on everybody. How are you? So we just come back with fine. And that's not an untrue statement. I mean, you know, there's, we're not falling apart. We're, 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 you know, we're vertical and still sort of in a right mind, that sort of thing. So we're, you know, fine fits. But it's probably not the most complete description of everything going on. There are those moments when you feel like you're just hanging by a thread. Life is just pulling you down. There's not much securing you. It's, 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 a, it's a scary place. And the people who received this message for the first time, from whomever the, the gospel writer was, the, the writer of this book, the preacher who preached the sermon, because I really think it was a sermon, they were people who were feeling like they were just literally hanging by a thread. Everything seemed to be against them. They had internal struggles with trying to figure out this new thing called the gospel. They had external struggles around them in society, and they were Hebrews who had now become followers of Christ. There was social and family pressure as well. And it was a difficult time, and they just sort of felt like they were hanging by a thread. So into that, the writer of this book, as the Spirit of God inspires this writer to tell us these things, he wants to encourage those people to hold on. Hold on. God does have this. There is hope. And sometimes we wonder when we feel like we're hanging with a thread. Maybe this isn't for you this morning. Maybe if, I, I, don't, I don't relate to that phrase, hanging by a thread. But I guarantee you there's someone probably with you in this room of worship that feels that way on some level. There's somebody that you're going to interact with this week or in your family or in your, your sphere of people that you know, that you need to pray for, and you need to be the example of that there is hope out there. But we, sometimes we wish, oh, I just, if I could just hang on till something better comes along, some better situation. Maybe it's a better job, a, a better you know, relational situation, a, a better stage of life, a, a, whatever the next, getting over that next hurdle, that, that next achievement, that next milestone. There's something better if, if I could be healed from this disease, if I could, that person I'm caring for could get to the place where they could care more for themselves. If I could just get to that next whatever it is, I'd feel like I've got to a place where something better is coming along. The reality is that injected into this truth, you're going to see this here in chapter 9, the writer says, let me tell you, friends, you don't have to worry about something better coming along or not. 
because something better has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. And all that he provides for us, all that he gives us. I don't know about you, I don't necessarily feel like I'm hanging by a thread, but sometimes the, it seems like the suspension system is getting a little threadbare in life, you know? And uh, so I, I, I want to interact with this text, and I want you to interact with this text with me. And may we all be encouraged that something better has come. Now, we're in the middle section of this book, and he, he's going through a number of contrasts between old and new, the old covenant, the new covenant, the old priesthood, the new priesthood. And it gets very detailed. It gets very technical. If you're an Old, if you're an old Testament student, scholar, and you like that stuff, this is, this is high, you know, high, high grass for you, you know. This is good stuff. But it, it gets a little technical. But don't miss the point. He's encouraging a group of people who feel like they're hanging by a thread that they don't have to wait for the better. The better has already come. And the same truth is true for us. Now, in chapter 9, there's three basic um, contrasts. There's a contrast between the, uh, the old sanctuary, the tabernacle of, of Moses, and later replaced with the temple. There's a difference between that and Jesus, what he's accomplished in a place of worship. There's a contrast between, this is verse 6 and following, a contrast between the service in that said tabernacle, the priestly service, and what Jesus accomplished. And later in the chapter, he talks about the difference between the sacrifices that took place in that place and the sacrifice that Jesus provided. And if you, after all those contrasts, you can just put one word, better, better, better. You don't have to wait, friends, for something better to come along to secure you, to, to just encourage you, to give you hope. Something better has already been given in the person of Jesus. And if we can accomplish that, we'll accomplish a lot this morning, just to see that. We're only going to look at the tabernacle. We don't have time to look at all those contrasts this morning. So we're just going to take a much smaller section, basically one through five, and then a couple verses later in the chapter just to kind of give some reflection back on that. But we want to talk about this superior or better tabernacle. So let me read verses one through five. If you have a Bible, follow along. And then we're going to, if you say some of this is kind of foreign to me, I don't know what exactly we're covering. Uh, that's okay. Just, 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 we're going to get there, all right? Verse 1, chapter 9, Hebrews. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances, a divine service, and the earthly sanctuary. Key word, earthly. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had, ma had the manna, Arad's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it all were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, he says in detail, I can tell you what was there, what it looked like, and exactly how it was. There's no, there's no depictions of it anywhere that, that someone who saw it with their eyes has left for us and that sort of thing. But first of all, this is, this is contrast number one, one of three, by the way. So this is one part of a, of a, of a lengthy, uh, part one of a three-part sermon, if you want to say it that way. And the message that's overlain in these five verses and a couple of verses we're going to see later is simply this. The earthly tabernacle had limited benefit. Now, God designed it. God gave the plans for it. God honored it. God showed up and indwelt in his presence in it. It was his plan and purpose. So we don't want to say, it's bad, this is good. It was good, but something better has come. 
Remember we used this word last time. It was a shadow. That's what he said back in the last chapter. These things are shadows of things to come. You're seeing the kind of the outline. You're seeing the basic shape, the basic concept. But they're shadows of something better, something heavenly, something superior, something greater, something that you can hold on to. And you don't have to wait for better to come along. Better is already here. So there's three key components of this, and we'll get a little into the detail as well, but component number one is it's limited, it has limited benefit because it has limited access. Limited access, all right? He says, he talks about this earthly sanctuary, he mentions that in verse 1, for a tabernacle was prepared, okay? So this goes all the way back to Exodus. They're, they're still camped out at Mount Sinai. In chapter 24 of Exodus, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, has a meeting with God, He's there for 40 days, 40 nights. Israel's camped around the mountain waiting for him to come down. They were not very good at waiting, by the way. And uh, neither are we, but uh, they were camped out there. And God gives them all this instruction, all the law, all that we have contained in, in the law that, that he, God directly gave. God writes down the law, the basic tenets of the law, on tablets of stone. And he gives instruction on how a place of worship was to be constructed. And I'm going to make this real simple. I'm not even going to show you a diagram because I've looked at diagram after diagram and I thought that's too confusing, that's too confusing. Let's make this simple. Imagine a rectangle in your mind. You got it? All right. Draw a line across the rectangle so that one part of the rectangle is a square and the other part of the rectangle is a rectangle. Got it? Easy? Are you with me? If you're awake, you can do that. All right. All right. So... The, and we're going to deal more with this later. Actually, Pastor Adam, I, I think I've heard that he's going to be teaching Sunday nights later on and get into the detail in the tabernacle. So I'm not going to take too much from you, all right? You, you, you stand by for that. And I love what Pastor Tim's doing with studying right now about the Feast of Israel because all this fits together, particularly when we're studying Hebrews on Sunday mornings. But in that rectangle part was what he's talking about here, the sanctuary, and there's three things in it. By the way, you would come in one end, and that end had a door, but it was not a a wooden door or something like that. It was a curtain. That's that first veil. So priests would go behind this curtain and into this part. And here's what it says about it. There were three things there. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, that seven branch, you've probably seen pictures of it, seven branch lampstand, basically oil lamps across the top. And it was lit, lit and tended, and it was to be lit con continually, perpetually, all right, to give light because there's no windows in this structure. So it's solid, solid, solid curtain on one end, which we'll get to in a moment, curtain, curtain lets you in on the front end, all right? Or something else was there. It says uh, the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, okay, which is called the sanctuary. Now, the showbread, if you, so if you walked in this rectangle, on your left would be the lampstand, on your right would be a table, and they would put bread out, and they would put fresh bread on it all the time. And that was a picture of God as light, God as holy, God as glorious, God is providing for us, that was the bread. And, you, and all this imagery flows over to Christ. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. So all this is pictures of Christ. I'll save the rest for you, okay? Now, the one thing that he doesn't mention in this, because he's just given a summary, if you walk to the end of that rectangular room, there would be another little altar there called the altar of incense. And they would burn incense and aromatic smoke would go up to do that twice in the day. And right beyond the altar of incense was another veil. We, that's the veil and we studied that back in the spring. We talked about when Jesus died, something very dramatic happened, that veil, and it was torn in two and, and all this imagery there. But verse 3, this is what I really want to get to. 
And by the way, the altar of incense was a picture of that smoke went up. It was a picture of the prayers of God, prayers ascending to God. So God answers prayer. God provides, God answers prayer, God is light, all those pictures in that part. Verse 3. And behind the second veil, the, tar- the, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. Now we just read those words and they kind of hang there, you know, holiest of all. Now that should be holiest of all, and, the, and we should have some special effects and shake the room, you know. This is the holiest place there is on this planet in this, in this time period. This is the holiest place. In fact, it's called not only the, holy, the holiest, holiest of all, it's commonly called in the Old Testament the holy of holies. It's like, let's just stack up the superlatives. Because in that place is where God's visible expression, observable presence dwelt. It was God's room, if you will, on this earth. God inhabits all of creation. God inhabits the heavens of the heavens. But God, if we could say it this way, God had a little apartment that he set up camp in the midst of these people as they traveled around. In this room is where God dwelt. It was God's home on earth. Why was it holy? Because God was there. Why was it holy? Because wherever God is there has to be holy because he's holy. Okay? Now, the high priest, and we've talked about this, and we're going to talk more about high priest. We'll talk more about the veil as we come in Hebrews. I'm going to save that for when it actually shows up in the text. But the high priest could go in behind that veil into the Holy of Holies one day a year on the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur. You're going to cover that later as well, so I'll save that for you. I'm just I'm delegating lots of stuff this morning, aren't I? But he would go in and once a year sprinkle blood there to be a covering. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So 364 days a year where God was, everybody had to stay out. That's pretty limited access. And on the Day of Atonement, one person got to go in. That's very limited access. Now, there's something very interesting here in this description. Verse 4, which had the golden censer. Now, that's the part that's like, what is that? That's, that's, as far as I can tell in Scripture, unless I've missed it somewhere... That's the only place that it's mentioned that this golden censer is inside the Holy of Holies. But we do know that when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he took a censer. Think of like a bowl or some sort of container, and it's got some chains up so you can hold it up here in this metal containers down here. They would take some live coals off the altar, put it there, and they would take a handful of incense, and it would just make smoke. It was like a smoke generator, okay? And so when he went behind the veil, this thing would go in with him so that the presence of God, the glory of God... 364 days it was veiled by the ta- by the veil it was it was covered by the veil on that day the smoke shielded him from the blaze of the glory of God and if he went any other time any other way he would not have survived this, the experience so that was there and it's all telling us God is among us but you can't quite get to him He's being gracious to us. He's telling us what he's going to do. He's telling us something about what is coming. He's telling us something about the Messiah. He's telling us something about the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the message of all of this is access is limited. Okay? Now, this is where it gets, I think, very interesting. And I want to spend a little bit of time in the end of verse 4. It says, And the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. Now, we don't know what it looks look like exactly, but here's an artist's depiction I'm going to throw up there just for your, your sake of looking, okay? And if you're watching online, you won't see this. If you watch the recording playback later, we'll put that picture in for you to see. So, it was a box, a wooden box, made of shaitim wood, 
and it was covered over with gold, okay? So basic rectangular box. It had two rings in it that they would slide wooden poles, also covered with gold, and that was how they'd carry it. They'd carry it that way. By the way, the ark was never carried open. It was not supposed to be carried open like this. It maybe was, but it wasn't supposed to be. What they would do was they would take the, the veil down when they packed up the tabernacle because it was a mobile structure, and they would walk forward and drop the veil over the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and those poles would be sticking out under the covering, and they carry it that way because this was holy. This was God's throne. This was the Ark of the Covenant. This, at this location is where God was showing up. And on top of it was a golden lid. It was not wood covered with gold. It was one solid chunk of gold. The guys that carried this around had to have some, they, had to, they were working out the rest of the year. I mean, this was, this was very heavy. And that lid was known as the mercy seat, and then he goes on to describe it in the text of Scripture, all right? Uh, over the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Verse 5, this is what I get to because all this picture's up. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of which of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So molded into this golden lid were these cherubim, these angelic creatures who had their wings outspread looking down, and if you, Isaiah 6 is a great place where it describes that he had this brief vision of God's glory seated on a throne and there was angels with wings and they're shouting back and forth, holy, holy, holy. So it's, it's some sort of representation of the heavenly sanctuary. So these angels are there and right above, underneath the wings of the angels, right above the mercy seat, that was the localized place where the glory of God was. In other words, this was God's seat, God's throne. Okay, he, he just appeared in what, what we'd call the Shekinah, his glory, his light, his, his blaze. It was not personified necessarily, we would understand, in a person, but there was this manifestation of where God was. And then he mentions three things that were inside the ark. And that's what we want to focus on, because that's where we interact with God in this picture, in this whole construction. There are three things there. It says, the Ark of the Covenant overlaying on sides of gold, in which were a golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Now, this is a, this is a museum piece that was designed, and someone was gracious enough to take a picture of it, that just sort of depicts that. So this golden container probably had a lid on it, but it's open there so you can see it. It had some manna, this rod, this stick that had buds on it, and the tablets of stone. Now, the tablets of stone we understand, Okay. In Exodus chapter 32, after Moses gets the direction and the people have already said in chapter 24, all that God says we will do, we're going to obey, we're your people, we, we sign on with this covenant. Forty days later, before Moses gets back down the mountain carrying these tablets of stone, they're already breaking every law they can find. They've, they've created an idol, they're worshiping idols, they're doing all this stuff, they, they think Moses must be dead, we're done with him, we're ready to go back to Egypt, whatever it is, they got all these things going on. Moses comes down carrying those tablets and when he sees it, by the way, God told him at the top of the mountain, said they've already prostituted themselves in idolatry. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to make a great nation of you. You can be Abraham part two. And Moses goes and says, oh, Lord, please spare them. He prays for mercy. And God says he will relent from destroying the nation. Moses gets down to the bottom of the mountain. I wonder if he'd have prayed the same thing if he'd have been at the bottom of the mountain when God gave him that offer. When he sees all this going on, he takes his tables of stone and breaks them they've broken the covenant. God later, after he deals with their sin and so forth, there's two more tablets of stone prepared. Those are what in the Ark of the Covenant. So what is that picture for us? 
It pictures simply this. We don't keep the law. God has a law. God has a standard. It's written in stone. It's stored in the holiest of places. It's what God expects. It's what God demands. If you want to be around God, this is the, this is the contract you have to keep. The only problem was it wasn't being kept on the day it was given. It's not been kept today, and it's not been kept on any day since. Because we have violated God's law. We are sinners. We're separated from him. We are wrapped up in unrighteousness, and God is total righteousness. Presents a problem, does it not? Then there's two other things that are in there. He says this, this, this container of manna. This, uh, this, this bowl of manna. Now, you remember while they were in the wilderness, God fed them for 40 years. Six days they go out and just pick this stuff off, off the ground. And basically manna, the, inter- the word manna basically in Hebrew means what is it? So they go out and God's feeding them. They pick it up. What is it? So it got the name pretty much, <laughs> what is it? Whatever it was that God provided, it was better nutrition than you can get at any health food store, Okay. Uh, that you could order off offline because it, it was full nutrition for a couple million people for 40 years. On the sixth day, they got twice as much because they didn't have to pick it up on the seventh day. If they tried to keep the last day's provision, any other day than the seventh day, it went bad and it was bad news. But you remember what they did with the manna? We ought to be back in Egypt. We, we'd be back in Egypt. This is Numbers chapter 11. We had, we had more food to eat than this. We had variety. I mean, we're, we're, we're like, we're going to the bakery every day for the same food, and we want to go to Golden Corral, okay? We want to go where there's this massive buffet where I can eat anything I want. It was, it was better back in Egypt, was it? God says, I'm taking your land flowing with milk and honey. You'd have been there a lot quicker if you hadn't disobeyed me when, you, when, we, when the spies spied out the land at Kadesh Barnea. But I'm providing for you something better is coming. There's something future for your descendants, and we want to go back to Egypt, and by the way, let's just kill Moses and get rid of him and let's get another leader. We're going to go back into slavery. That's sort of what the Hebrews were facing. They felt like they were hanging by a thread and maybe it's better just to go back to that lifestyle. But instead, he pushes them forward. So God told them, and this is Exodus 16, verses 33 and 34. Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer full, which is about two quarts of our measuring, full of manna therein, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generation as the Lord commanded. So Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Testimony is another word for those tablets of stone. So even though they weren't peeking into the Ark of the Covenant, they knew what was in there. Tablets of stone means we have rejected every day of our lives, God's law. God feeds us every day. By the way, if you ate this morning, did you thank God for it? I hope you did because he gave it to you. You, know, may have, you may have gone to the grocery store and bought it. Or you may have grown it in your garden or whatever, but it's a gift from God. God provided for them. God provides for us. And they rejected God's provision. We don't want it. We want that. We want something different. We want something more. We don't like what you're, what the, the box you're putting us in, God. And they rejected God's provision. And God was very, very angry with them, and, and uh, uh, it, was, it was a bad scene. So in this box, right under where God's glory dwelt, was a reminder that we as humans have rejected God's law. We've rejected God's provision. And it says there's Aaron's rod that budded. And this story comes from Numbers 17. Basically, there was one branch of the family called the, the, the Korah. And the, the, the group that was the descendants of Korah 
basically said, Moses, why, why do you get to be boss? Should we be boss? Why does Aaron get to be the high priest? Why is it all sort of, it sounds like nepotism to us, even though they didn't probably have that word in, in Hebrew. But, you know, you're keeping it all in your family because Moses and Aaron were brothers. And you're setting it up. And, and we should have what you wanted. But it was God who selected Moses at the burning bush. It was God who told Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 2 that Aaron was going to be at your side and so forth. So this is what God decided. This was God's authority structure. And it's, it is a, it is, it's an it's a astounding scene. As all this unfolds, God says to all the people, get away from Korah. Get away from where they're camped out. And everybody kind of backs off. And it says this in Scripture. God literally opened the ground up. They fell in and everything they had and closed the ground over them. God was mad. God was angry at their sin. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that takes place. And, and later he says, just to establish who my authority is, he, he has all the different tribes bring a rod. Of course, Aaron had his rod. Remember, that's the one he showed before Pharaoh and all that. He says, bring them, bring them before me, and they bring them before the Lord. And this rod, that you know, it's just a dead stick. But, but suddenly they look at it again, and it's got leaves, it's got fruit on it, it's, it's, it's come back to life. And he said, that's my selection. That's my authority structure. And you have to understand you are under my authority. It's not the other way around. So the, this, this rod that was there was saying simply this. You have rejected my authority over you. You have rejected my provision for you. And you have rejected my law given to you. The Ark of the Covenant is literally a box symbolizing the sin of mankind. It's a box of sin. Now, that might be mind-boggling to you, but that's what it was. And God is sitting up there above it looking at that sin. He knows what's in the box. He knows over it. And His glory is there. And we'll see this a little bit later as well. But on the Day of Atonement, God did give this provision. The Day of Atonement, they would go into the ark. Go back to the last picture before, if you would. He would go in there with blood, and they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, on the lid of that Ark of the Covenant, on the Day of Atonement. And basically, that we'll see that later that that was basically to cover the sins they didn't know about. They were supposed to make other sacrifices for the sins they knew about. Do you ever think about that? How many sins do we commit that we don't even know we do? We don't even do them. We don't even know we do them. What a, what a dreadful thought. But he says that's what we're covering. And between where God was and where man's sin was, blood intervened and covered the sin. It's called atonement, which is primarily an Old Testament word, not a New Testament word. Because we have something better. It was of limited access. It was a temporary covering for sins. Because it had to be done the next year and 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 the next year for centuries. For basically almost 16 centuries, this has been being practiced by the tabernacle, later by the temple that replaced it. So this is the reality. And where has that left us? Where has this covenant left us? Where has this law left us? This law has left us with some hope that something better is coming, but it's left us lost. It's left us lost. And can you imagine if that's where we were today? We'd be hoping and looking for something better to come. We should have been anyway. But friends, when you feel like there's this pull to go back and chuck it all and give it all up, when we feel like we need to quit, when we need to just, just might as well just go back to that lifestyle. You know, it, it, looks, it looks pretty good compared to where I am. Remember this, something better has come. Something better has come.
And we should realize that God loved us so much, he was not going to leave us in this condition. I want to encourage you to do this. You need to live loved. Live loved. Live like you're the, the, that you're the love of God's life, because you are. You are the apple of his eye. You are his richest treasure. He loved you enough not to leave you in a temporary arrangement, but that Jesus once for all would come. And with his own blood, make the once for all sacrifice so you can be one of his children. Grace, mercy is there. In his instance, that's the mercy seat. <laughs> but Jesus is the mercy giver. It's the place where sin was covered. Not only is our sins covered, remember we saw this in the end of chapter 8. I will remember their sins no more. That was the promise of the future covenant. Not our sins are covered temporarily to be covered again. Our sins are removed. They're, they're gone. They're forgiven. They're forgotten. That's us. When you don't feel very loved in this world, and there's lots of places, lots of situations where you don't, and even the people who love you the most, sometimes they're imperfect, right? We understand that. Keep running back to this truth of how much God loves you. And if you want to see it, you go back to the cross. You want to feel it, you go back to the cross. When you want to read about it, you go back to the book. When you want to know who its source is, you go back and worship the Savior. When you want to know its depth, look at the magnificence of what it provides. If you want to know if there's any strings attached, it's free. It's free. Whosoever will may come, come and drink freely. Come and, come and enjoy. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Hanging by a thread, you're loved. You're running to someone this week that's hanging by a thread, show them that they're loved by sharing some love with them. People who live loved are people who can share love. Now, I want you to go just a couple more verses. Let's go down to verse 11. Just going to give you a hint of this, all right, just quickly. Just a, the contrast here with the heavenly tabernacle. The heavenly tabernacle, which we'll look more in detail later, the heavenly tabernacle gives us sufficient benefits for all that we need, all right? It says there, but Christ came as high priest of good things to come. That was the things you were looking for. Well, for something better, it's come. With a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not his creation. So this is a heavenly construct. This is a heavenly viewpoint that God did this in the person of Christ. Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place. Well, I thought that most holy place was inside the tabernacle. No, it was a shadow of the other. The most holy place is God's permanent everlasting throne in the heavens and when he poured out his blood in essence that that was that got into effect in the holiest place the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption he entered it once for all not yearly not regularly not repeatedly secondly that way is open to God's presence and we'll look at this later when he talks about he associates the veil that of the holy of holies with a certain reality about Jesus. And you can read ahead if you want to. I don't want to give it away now. And lastly, Jesus removed our sin, not just covered them. Jesus has removed our sin. Removed them. Gone. Not just covered them. Gone. Not going to pop up again. Maybe they'll pop up in our minds. Maybe someone else hadn't forgotten it. But it's gone as far as God's concerned. Later we're going to learn, and this will be next week probably, where he talks about in verse 9 about 
this could not cleanse our conscience. Even though we did, they did these sacrifices, they still felt guilty. They still had the weight of sin on them. We should not feel guilty because that's all been laid on Jesus. You don't have to wait for something better. Something better has come. And this is what happened in that heavenly sanctuary, which was foreshadowed with what happened in that earthly sanctuary. And lastly, we should live forgiven. We should live like forgiven people. And I only got one thing to tell you about that, but it's a hard one. It's not easy. It's anti-natural to the natural man. It's not something we have a lot of practice with. It's not something we're probably even going to feel real good about when I say it, but it's, but it's true. People who live in light of their forgiveness are people who forgive other people. I really wish that were easier, <laughs> but it's not. We all want it coming our way. Yeah, yeah, forgive, will you forgive me? Oh, thank you. Forgive me? I'm sorry. Will you forgive me again? How about you forgive me another 25 times? I want you to forgive me. But to dispense forgiveness, at least for some of us, maybe I'm, just, maybe I'm the only one in the room, but I doubt it. We have trouble dispensing forgiveness. And maybe right now, there's somebody in your life, in your heart, in your mind, you need to say, I got to let that go. I got to just let that go. Not bring that up anymore. I can't erase the, the memory banks in my mind, but I can just not let it be something that, just, that I just stew on, that I think about, that I, that I let it just... just poison my soul and invade my heart with the weight of that unforgiveness and to be overcome and awash in the bitterness that it'll produce live loved because you have something better live forgiven because you have something better and friends if you've never come to the place that you have believed that Jesus is that better permanent sacrifice Open your heart to him. Believe in him. Trust in him for your salvation. If you'd like to have a conversation about what that means in some detail and as much time as we need in a very non-threatening environment, we'd love to have that conversation with you after the service or any time. Become the Savior. Friends, when you're hanging by a thread, you don't have to wonder if something better is going to come. Someone better. Thank you for joining us for Living the Word today. We appreciate your sharing in this study of the scriptures. Also, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you will not miss a single episode. And thanks, too, for your prayers and for letting others know of this ministry as we seek to be living the Word today. We would love to have your feedback and to hear from you. And the best way to contact us is through our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Until next time, may His blessing be yours.